See, we looked full until they left, right? That's a lot of kiddos. Really, really good. Um, also, in that same vein, make sure that you encourage our, our children's director, Allie uh, Starnes. She is doing a great job trying to coordinate everything with Operation Christmas Child. So continue to pray for those things. Now, before we get started, uh, I'm going to do uh, something we've, we've not done many times. Um, we're going to encourage you to do something. Uh, there is an, an initiative that you need to be aware of. Um, the state legislature, um, on Monday and Tuesday, they're actually going to listen to representatives all over the state of Tennessee on what we would call like a, a right for life or a heartbeat bill. Um, we don't say many political things from the stage before, but because we are unashamedly, as a community of believers, we are pro-life, both in doctrine and in practice. One of our ministry partners is um, a do- an uh, abortion agency in which we are trying to encourage people to, to, to uh, choose life over death. We believe that life begins at conception, and that we, because of the dignity of the Lord, we are to do everything in our power to encourage people to choose life. And so with that, um, there is a petition um, going out uh, um, tonight uh, that will actually end up on the judiciary floor tomorrow. The representative's name is uh, Randy Davis, and Randy Davis will come with hopefully thousands upon thousands of names of Tennesseans who have chosen life. Um, If you're a regular attender at Redstone Church at 2 o'clock this afternoon, you're going to get an email that will give you the specifics. But we want you to consider uh, what you would do with that email and potentially, if you've got an email address, come alongside uh, that initiative and, and stand up for what we believe is, is, is life, not death. What we believe is, is just the act, absolute center of where life begins. And so we would encourage you to do that. Okay, so at 2 o'clock this afternoon, just anticipate that. So we've all heard, all right, so that's, that's segue here. So we're, we're going to now, now do some preaching. Now we've all heard uh, the old adage that you are either coming out of a season of suffering. You're either coming out of or you are in a season or of suffering, or you're potentially about to head toward a season of suffering. We've heard that before, right? And all of the things in our life kind of point to the, the trueness of that old adage. Now today we would like to expand that adage just a little bit and say that it's not just us personally who are walking through pain and suffering. But because we are a part of a community of faith, because we're a part of a faith family, because we're a part of a church, we are all, you know, someone is always going through pain. So it's not just us personally going through the pain, but if you look to your left or your right, to the front or the back of you, there's a good chance that someone is going through immense pain around us. That's just what we, inha- or what we inherit as a church body is that we have collectively, we have to understand pain and suffering at a deep cause. And so with that, you may personally not be going through suffering and pain right now, but your neighbor is. And so we want you to recognize in this season that we're going to be teaching through suffering for four weeks. We're going to be talking through what pain and suffering is for the entire month of August. 
And we want you to actually not travel in August, but try to attend each and every week because it is so important that the body of Christ understand what it means to do is to, is to suffer well, is to realize that pain is present. Pain is very, very, very present. It may not be present in your life, but it's present for those people around you. And for that reason, we've come alongside you with one little image. It's a nifty little image and it's a nifty little phrase. It's called the J-curve. And it's this arrow that goes down before it goes up. And so in the next four weeks, or in, in four weeks, we just want you to have a term and potentially a image in your head as far as how we go through pain and how you and I go through suffering. It should look a little bit like this, because this is the direction of Jesus' life. If you've followed Christianity very long, you understand that Jesus suffered many, many times before he was ultimately raised to life, a new life. That over the course of his life, over and over and over, he was subjected to suffering first and foremost before God allowed him to live and be resurrected in life. In the same way that Jesus, this is the trajectory of Jesus' life, in the same way that's the trajectory of your life and my life if we walk with Jesus. This is what you are to be expecting, is this type of trajectory before this. You have to go down before you go up. We need to expect suffering and pain and loss. The Bible puts it this way, that we are to follow after Christ. And if we're to follow after Christ, we have to trace his footsteps down before we're going up. The New Testament over and over and over tells us this little preposition says that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are to join him where he is at. And so if we are in Christ, that we need to be very close and comfortable with the fact that pain and suffering is a part of our everyday life. There is no book in the Bible that shows us this trajectory like the book of Job. Some of you have heard of this Old Testament book, but the book of Job shows us this trace, that Job continued to go down and down and down before he was elevated. Funny story is today I, was, uh, I had it planned on my preaching calendar to teach you one verse. That was actually Colossians 1.24. That was my intent. On Monday, we got together with the preaching team, and we discussed what the church needed. And they convinced me, instead of going preaching one verse, to, to teach one book of the Bible. And so today, we're going to try to tackle the entire book of Job. It's in the Old Testament. You need to follow it there. That's the reason there's nothing on um, your bulletin or your worship guide, because we can't print 42 chapters of the Bible on one sheet of paper. So that's right. Buckle up, get a seatbelt, because that's what we're going to do. We're going to try to get through 42 chapters and eight preaching points in a little under 25 minutes. Pray for the preacher this morning. Pray for the preacher. All right, this is how it's going to happen. Um, first and foremost, here we go. Job chapter 1. Again, you're going to have to either turn in your Bibles or get it on, your, on uh, your phones or something like that because there's no way that we could have printed it out. So yeah, grab your Bibles because we, this is kind of follow along Sunday. All right, so point number one, there's eight of these. 42 chapters, eight points, so we're going to have to really go. 
First and foremost is that you need to understand the way that the book of Job opens is the reality that the seasons of suffering are truly hard, all right? This should not be uh, a surprise to us, but this is how the book of Job starts, and so this is how we will start. Verse 6 says this, Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro uh, on the earth and from walking up and down it. So this is God, or this is Satan's movement to kind of go to and fro. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And, sa and Satan answered to the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? This is the reason that he trusts you. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you not blessed him? the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. I guarantee you, the only reason that he's praising you is because you've done good things to him. You take that blessing away from him, from you, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the old, at the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and looked on them and struck them down and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, while the other serv servant was still speaking, while he was yet speaking, there came another servant who said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there was another who said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants at the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped you. While he was yet speaking, there, was yet an, there came another who said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. And fell on the ground and worshiped the Lord. The donkeys and the oxen are gone. Suffering lands hard when it comes to us. The sheep and the servants are gone. The camels and the servants are gone. His sons and his daughters are gone. Job's family members and his possessions are all gone. They are all gone in just a few short paragraphs. Later throughout the book, we'll see that his health is taken from him. You're going to hear stories, if you read, you're going to hear stories of boils, Job writhing in pain, how Job loses his appetite, that he's severely depressed, that the boils attract worms because they...
ooze. He has a hard time breathing, a hard time sleeping. He has a fever. His skin pills off. This is the plight of Job. Sometimes seasons of suffering lands hard. If we look at Job's life in just these paragraphs, it's pretty easy to say that he didn't need a permission slip to give to his teacher. Like, he just looked bad because it was very, very bad. And so how was Job to anticipate this? He couldn't. How could he prep for this? He can't. We can't. And that's the point, is that when it hits, it hits hard. It lands really, really strong on our lives. Take, for instance, my friend Adam. Adam was in the prime of, is in the prime of his life. He was about to get engaged. He landed a decent paying job. He was climbing the ladder of success when one day he was at work. He was there on the floor of the warehouse. When a temp, not even an employee of the, the, the um, company, a temp was actually driving a forklift. He wasn't watching where he was going, ran over Adam, hit him, and crushed his leg. Adam, writhing in pain, laying there, saw his leg limp. And within a few short hours, Adam had lost his leg from the thigh down. He spent many nights in hospital rooms, different hospitals. He spent endless days in physical therapy. Adam gets depressed. He doubts God. He convinces himself that the girlfriend, soon-to-be fiancé, is only taking care of him because she feels sorry for him. And there's no way that she would ever want to marry a gimp. And so what did Adam do wrong? He simply just showed up for work. And so the suffering in our life comes just out of nowhere and just lands really, really hard. So hard that Job, writhing in pain, he rose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped the Lord. Sometimes the seasons of pain come and they land really, really hard. Second thing that we see in the book of Job is that suffering comes upon the faithful. You would have l- listened to a dialogue like this and you would have said, What did he do? What did Job do? What bad thing that, that had Job done to account for all of this? Like, don't the bad things really, really happen to bad people? Well, from the very first verse, we see something different. Let's read verse 1 together. Job 1, 1. And there was a man from the land of Uz, and his name was Job. And the man was blameless and upright. And he was one who feared God and turned away from evil. Verse 8. The Lord himself says this of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Wouldn't you like that for God himself to say that about you? He is upright. Verse 20 says, And then he rose and tore his robe and shaved his head. But then, as he fell to the ground, he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Chapter 2, verse 3 said, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, 
blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. This is after Job had lost everything. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's in verse 10. So the second thing that we need to realize is that suffering comes for the faithful. Suffering comes upon those who attend church. There's suffering who comes to those who read their Bible daily. Suffering comes from those who've given their lives to Jesus. Suffering comes for those who've given their whole life to missionary causes. Suffering comes to those who have done everything right on earth. It's just coming. There's no way that we can dodge it. We're either coming out of or in or going through or somebody around. It's just the fact of it is, is that we have to go down because there's some kind of worth down in the bottom or in the belly of suffering that cannot be taught to us on the heights of mountains. It's just coming toward even the most faithful among us. So if the reason that you're faithful or if the reason that you pray or read your Bible is to stay away from suffering or pain or the fact that that's like your exempt, uh, the slip of exemption, that's not the way the Christian life works. He says that we have to go down and go into suffering, enter suffering with us. There is some kind of Christian fantasy land out there that says that nothing can touch us because we follow Jesus. If that's the case, then why do we not see Jesus writhing in pain and loss and questioning God himself? The path of Jesus is a path towards suffering. And so let's get it out of our mind that we are exempt from these things simply because we follow after Jesus. There's no reason to put a spiritual face on suffering. It lands hard and it's coming after us. There's, there's a theologian that some of us have read and, and even had him kind of walk us through what it means to understand theology. And this man has, has a few sons. He raises them up to love and to enjoy Christ forever. In their early 20s, they all leave the house and they stay very faithful to the Lord. It's in these moments where they're free and they're independent and they've walked away from daddy theologian and they have to own it themselves. One son in his mid-20s, he gets married. I mean, the woman of his absolute dreams. I mean, just absolute smitten with her. They get married and it's an amazing day. It's a beautiful day. I mean, you've got the most famous like church members and pastors attending this ceremony because, I mean, his dad was a theologian. And so just, I mean, just the who's who were at this wedding. It's amazing. Two beautiful people who love God and love each other. Three months after being wed, that beautiful day in which they've given their lives to Jesus. Three months after that day, the wife driving in a car hit and killed. The son walks into the hospital room. The dad somehow had met him there. Everyone is bawling at this moment, wondering what the son will do looking upon his wife. She simply, he simply walks over to the hospital bed, grabs a hand and simply says, the Lord gave 
and the Lord has given away, taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It lands hard, people. And it even comes for those who've given their lives to, to Jesus and follow after him fully and completely. We can't dodge it just because we claim Jesus. It's a fallacy. It's heresy. Number three. This is not Job verse 3 through verse 25. This is Job chapter 3, verse through 25. <laughs> this is the large chunk of our scriptures. We need good friends in our life. Amen? When we're feeling terrible about ourselves, we need good friends. Chapter 2, verse 11 and following, we need these types of friends. Now, Job's three friends heard all this, that, all this evil that had come upon Job. And they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show their sympathy and comfort to Job. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept. They too, they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was great. We need really good friends like this in our lives. Men and women who will come alongside us. Who will be with us and comfort us in our day and in our times of, of trial. And then in verse, uh, or chapter 3 through 35, or 25, something amazing happens. Their moment of comfort actually turns to really, really bad advice and really poor theology. This is just the way it unfolds, so we're just going to unfold it together. For the 22 or 23 chapters, we hear over and over and over, well-meaning folks, just like you and I, walk into hospital rooms or by, beside people who are wounded and, and in suffering, and they actually wound with their words. They hurt people with their advice. They say their theology is really bad. And so the first thing that comes out of their mouth are these things that um, even though they're well-meaning, they believe deep inside their heart the fact that things that we believe deep in our, our heart, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's what we believe, and so that's what we give away. Job, did you not see your life? You had it all. You had camels and sheep and oxen and servants and houses and sons and daughters and wives. It was all going good, and then it took a plummet. What did you do, man? Because it's just unfathomable to us any other option. Obviously, something that Job did caused all of these things. 
the friends, nor Job had access to what we have access to, the, that the creator of the world and the anti-creator of the world, right? The one who will pillage and rage and lie are actually having a conversation about Job. They have no privy to this conversation at all. Instead, they're interpreting the world as they see it. And the way they see it is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And this is where their advice lies is that you need to get your act straight, son. So they say things to Job. Again, 22 chapters worth. They say things like, Job must have hidden or unconfessed sin in his life. They tell Job that people always reap what they sow. They tell Job unequivocally, it is your responsible. And you are responsible for the death of your children. The worst type of theology often comes out of the hearts and the minds and the mouths of very well-meaning folks. For you and I, we need to understand that we need to, to, to understand this so that we don't become this. So very practically, um, we say some of the most asinine things when we get inside people. Uh, we say things like, um, it could have been a lot worse. Not helpful. Ever. Ever. Strike it from your vocal cords. Thing that's often not bad theology, not even bad practice, but simply saying, I'll pray for you. That's like a half step closer to what they really need. Why don't we exchange, um, I'll be praying for you, to actually, can I pray for you now, would be much better. The thing that probably stings the worst is, everything happens for a reason, which is theo theologically true, that all things do have a purpose. But it's like knowing that little quip that everything ha happens for a reason will magically make the pain disappear in that moment. Lastly, really bad advice is, hey, have you tried this? Or have you tried that? Or hey, I have this thing that will, you know, help me. Even though that's helpful and can be helpful, oftentimes it's saying that that pain that your experience can be alleviated by these types of solutions when you and I simply don't know. It's interesting that when we hear God talk at the end of this book, we actually will hear God himself rebuke these three friends because their advice was so poor. God wants us to be good friends, and we don't want to be rebuked by God by the types of things that we tell others. Number four. Um, oh, sorry, forgot about this. Those are the four really bad reasons. All right, number four. Chapter 29 and 30 is that after, I mean, just chapters and chapters, days and days, lots and lots of uh, rebuttals and counter rebuttals, Job hits his limit. And we see in chapter 29 31, at some point in our life, in the moments of suffering, we'll hit a breaking point. 
And this is just what happened to Job. So this may not happen with you, but we just got to follow the, the narrative here. That what Job turned to in understanding suffering and pain is that he turned to self-justification. He started propping himself up and he started believing what they were saying. is like, no, I really am a pretty good person. Something happens to Job. This righteous man, this blameless man becomes self-righteous almost in an instant. Maybe it's out of defense of his, of his friends. Maybe it's out of sheer exhaustion. We don't know why, but he just turns inward. He simply says this, and something that we have said over, Lord, I do not deserve this. Or I've done so much for you, how dare you? Or why would God allow these types of things happen to me? Job just rattles in three chapters. He says things like, I've done so many things that have impacted so many lives. He says that other people have held me to high esteem. He says this, and this is bold. I was eyes to blind people. Literally, people could not see without me. Or I was feet to the lame people. People could not walk without my assistance. When I would speak, when I would offer advice, people would eagerly wait for my counsel. And when I shared it, no one spoke. They, They went silent. It's not calamity for the unrighteous. Is not disaster for those sinners full of iniquity. And then he starts to prop himself up. If I have walked in falsehood, let me be weighed in the balance. And the point is, I have not had any falsehood in me. If my step has turned from the way, let me be, let me be rebuked. But I shouldn't be rebuked because I am a good husband. I'm a great boss. I've been a great philanthropist. I've made all the money. I have not made money an idol. I've never let my mouth sin. These are the things that we hear out of Job's life is this idea of self-justification and self-righteousness. Oh, that if I had one to hear me, here is my signature Job would say, let the Almighty answer me. He would attest to my goodness and my purity. And so Job quickly turns towards self-justification. How dare you, Lord, allow me to do, go and experience this because I have been so great. Just know that that's deep inside the heart of humanity. And so if you're going through pain, if you're going through suffering, just don't be afraid. Don't be surprised when these types of things start boiling or coming out, of your, coming out of your heart. And then in chapter 32, there is a friend that shows up in, in chapter 32. His name is Elihu. And Elihu was not rebuked by the Lord at the end of the book. Instead, it just, he just, his, his dialogue ends. And what Elihu does is that he too rebukes Job, but it's a different type of rebuke. It has good theology because his rebuke is the one that leads toward repentance for you to consider God and consider yourself. Elihu is pretty sharp, and he shows first and foremost that, uh, that uh, his, he was led astray 
right, by their rebuke. So he is rebuking the bad theology. But secondly, he probes and looks at Job and says, no, you too need to be repent, that you too need to repent. And he, more than anything, what he does for Job, this good friend, he rebukes the bad theology, he rebukes Job, but then he like sets the parameters. And these are the types of friends that we need. This is what scripture will do for us when we don't have a friend, is that when it rebukes or when they rebuke us, it will lead toward transformation for all of us. What Elihu does for Job is it, he changes Job's perspective. Elihu simply says there is a great purpose in God's plan for all of this. God has good purposes, Elihu will say to Job, that God uses his suffering. And the counter uh, of, of Elihu is the book of James in the New Testament, who says to consider joy when you face trials, because these trials, this testing of your faith, will produce things like steadfastness. And so what this rebuke will do is it'll shift all of our attention, and all of our, uh, 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 will grab our attention to force us to look inward and to look upward. This is what and we hear in that very famous scene in High School Musical, right? You weren't expecting a Zac Efron quote right now, but here we go. This is what happens is when in the locker room, when they says, bro, you got to get your, oh, thank you. I was like, whoa, no one's seen this? You got to get your head in the game. That's what they said. So they're rallying around and you've got to get your head in the game, right? Rebuking bad theology and looking, being introspective about what you're doing, how you are actually distancing yourself from the Lord, is what Elihu does. And then, chapters 38 through 41, minus the first chapter of, of Job, these are the most famous chapters in, in the book of Job. If you haven't read chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41, I would encourage you to spend some time. It'll take you 20 minutes tops to read these chapters. But in this, we will see that God's greatness is what overwhelms us. In this chapter, we will see God himself speak directly to Job. And what he speaks to Job is what we need more than anything what we do not need is rationale or we don't need necessarily for suffering to disappear in our life. What God is saying to Job and what his heart and mind needs more than anything is to be reminded that God is great and his greatness is all-powerful and all-knowing and it will overwhelm our soul. What we need more than anything is to see the greatness of who God is. And so... What we see in chapters 38 and following is 64 questions that God asks Job in which Job cannot give an answer. Job literally stays quiet. Of all of these things, we hear that God is almighty and all-strong and all-powerful. Hey, Job, who is it? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man, big boy. I will question you, and I want you to make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
uh, uh. Tell me if you have understanding. Who, who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Uh-uh, I don't. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or, or who sunk its bases? Or laid its cornerstone? Long pause. Or who shut in the sea with doors? There's doors in the sea? I don't even know what door. I don't even know. There's a, or who burst out when it bursts out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, prescribed limits to it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come. Where were you, Job? And I'm just in verse 11. Have you commanded the morning? No. Have you entered into the springs? No. Who has a cleft, who has cleft a channel for torrents of rain? Not me. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Uh-uh, that's his job. Who can satisfy the up appetite of the young lions? Would they crouch in their dens or lie in the thickets? Who provides the ravens for its prey? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? No, sir. On and on and on. 64 glorious questions. 64 questions that will distance Job from the creator of the universe. Meaning, listen, bub, you do not have the answers to the greatest questions on planet Earth, but I do. How can you not trust me with your life? If I can sink the bases or understand torrents or provide things for ravens and lions, how can you doubt the fact that I am not going to provide for you? What we need more than anything is to understand God's greatness and his power and to be overwhelmed by who he is. God's sovereignty is not just a footnote in this book. God's sovereignty is running through it. It is the theme that God is in control, is in control, even in suffering and pain. David Platt puts it this way. He says, if God doesn't have the power over the trials in your lives, then God does not have the power to take you through the trials of your life. And so if you rob him of this, there's no way he can provide this. But when you allow him control, to relinquish control, then guess what? He is walking you through the trials. The worst thing for humanity is to believe that suffering and pain is random. That it's just by chance. The best and, best and safest place for you and I to be is believing that we are underneath the suffering, but the suffering is underneath the hand of a loving God. Then we hear Job's humility. Job finally answers, and he says, I know that you can do these things, Lord. I will be quiet. And verse 5 says this, I have heard of you with my hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. There's only one way for me, for my eyes to see you for who you are. It's the idea that I had to go through suffering. Hear Job's confession. 
his repentance, his understanding, his humility, as I have heard of you by concept only, by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in ashes and in dust. Job comes to the end of himself. He's asked over and over and over. In, in fact, the, the, the question why is asked 25 times in the book of Job. And when he comes to himself, it says that God's revelation of who he is, not the reason of the suffering, God's revelation of who he is, not the reason of their suffering, is enough for Job, and it's got to be enough for us. So at the, as we come to the communion table, we need to ask ourselves, have we only heard of the Lord, or have we seen the Lord? Have we only heard of him by con concept only? Or is there an intimate relationship with him? Oftentimes, these days of suffering and pain will either lead us toward bitterness or lead us toward contentment in him. Maybe, just maybe, you have rejected the suffering that's in your life as full of purpose. We would encourage you to em embrace this season of suffering is full of purpose with God himself. This morning, we're challenging you. Is God enough to take you through that? We are human, and we ask the why question. Maybe some of us have asked it more than 25 times in the last few months or the last season. Maybe this morning is a morning where you just need to lay that down before the Lord. You can do that in a couple ways. You can do that just in your seat. Or you just pause. Before communion, you just pause and give it to the Lord. Sometimes it's good just to walk through this uh, season with somebody. We got Mr. Bruce and Neji back there who would love to pray and just point you to Jesus in this season of pain and suffering. Today, let your response be humility. Let your response be that, Lord, I don't want to just hear you. I want to see you and have confidence in you this morning. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he suffered. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he told the gospel story. He said, it will be my body, not whole, that will save you. It will not be a chalice stayed that will save you. In fact, it is my body torn and my blood shed that will actually bring you wholeness and completeness. It is by his wounds that we are healed. His story is our story. As he suffered, we will also suffer. So know that this communion table is a table of suffering, that he ultimately did a price paid for us, and then he welcomes us into his story. There are men around the room that are going to serve you communion. Take it. Embrace the suffering servant of Christ Jesus. Don't get out of your seat too soon, though. If you're praying for a humble heart, stay there or approach the guys in the back. We want to come alongside you in this, this season of suffering and, pray, uh, and pain. So go ahead and stand. And these, these uh, stations are open and you can use at your discretion.